0: A listener production. If you love what you do, you're going to be good at it. And persistence helps you get through the ups and the downs. And if you don't have persistence, it's so easy to jump off that train when there's a down. So you've got to just keep going. I refer to myself and Papi as a mountain goat. We just keep climbing.
1: <laughs> hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast.
2: imagine you've been in
1: business for over a decade and you're still on the edge of success. Would you give up? This is what Renee James, founder of Papanel Sleepwear, experienced in her first 12 years of business. But she's still here to tell the tale. Renee started Papanel in 2003, selling her pyjamas from the stalls of Paddington Markets in Sydney. When her collection started selling out each week, She took a leap of faith, she got a 9K bank loan and she moved from the stalls to something bigger. Let's fast forward to now. Papinel is on every street corner in the US and she's even considering establishing a team over there. Papinel's a story of slow, considered growth over a long period of time. It's a story for anyone that's not quite sure if they're going to make it or if you're just feeling stuck. We hope that this episode gives you the courage to keep on trucking. So you started Papanel Sleepwear back in 2003 at 24 years of age at the Paddo Markets. Yeah. So for, you know, everyone that's listening from Sydney, the Paddington Markets, the famous markets, and there have been other brands that have um, been birthed from the Paddington Markets. You've got Sass and Bide. um, You've also got Zimmerman. Take us back back to the moment when you started selling your garments at the Paddington Market?
0: Wow. Um, Yeah, so I finished university and I used to design prints and they just lent themselves to sleepwear really well. So I created a collection and I think, you know, back then I think that Paddington Markets was the only place that you could sort of test your market. So you know, you get your tent from Bunnings, and you set up your rail, and you take you take it there. And it was, it's a one man band. That you know, I was sewing everything and ironing everything. And every weekend, it would sell out. And then I would just create another bunch of pajamas and take them back. And it was really good because you, you sort of found out what people were flocking to and what was selling out first. And there were some really great both customers and people selling at the markets. So you knew that um, you were getting market acceptance it wasn't you know because it was really cheap or because it was secondhand or it was you know your designs and people were responding to them. so it was it was I remember it being really hard work and I remember th- at the end of the day you'd have like $800 dollars and be like wow, <laughs> got this for the week and then you'd do it you know you'd do it all again the next weekend. but it was quite hard to get into you had to sort of submit your work to them and they would approve it and it was hard to get a good spot and you know it was a it was a real it was a real thing oh. back then.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and were you doing it back then with the ambition that like this was a product that you wanted to sell and build into a brand, or was it kind of a little bit of a passion project at the time?
0: That's a really good question. I think I've never sort of known any different. I knew that, that I wanted to make it a business, definitely. I probably didn't envisage where it would be today, but It was definitely me starting a business, creating a brand. Like At the same time, I was building a website and registering the logo and and doing all the other things associated with it. So I I definitely had a vision to start a business.
2: So you were doing all of that at the same time as you were at the market selling and I guess learning about your customer and what they liked.
0: Yeah. And the markets is only a one day a week. Mm. So um, everything else was getting done. I mean, I Probably had a full-time job at the time as well. I mean, I, I did for the first couple of years. it It took a while to become a full-time thing, but I was teaching myself how to how to build websites. It, absolutely everything that is involved in starting a business I taught myself.
1: <laughs> and was it as simple as kind of you know going on and googling how to build a website because a lot of our founders that we speak to that don't have that business background say that that's where they start. But you know, we're kind of talking a little little while ago. Was it the same kind of way of learning, or did you have other people that you could turn to to mentor you?
0: No, it was the same. And I remember at the time everyone was using Flash, so I had to to learn. Like I had this butterfly fly across the screen, and it took oh like a God. week to get
2: <laughs> <laughs> I remember.
0: <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah, but it was uh, yeah, and she like yeah, it took it took a while to get to get it right, but um, but it was all self taught, and I you know.
2: I just Googled it. So at what point did you go, okay, this actually has legs, you know, I'm selling out every week, I'm going to invest a bit of cash into kind of taking it to the next level? At what point did that happen?
0: Yeah, I think I had a couple of wholesale customers. So one of them was Peters of Kensington that approached me to sell and then there was another beautiful homeway store on Oxford Street that also approached me to sell it. And so then I started to get quite a few orders from people and I believe I did a trade fair and um, and got like a whole swag of orders and I was really surprised. And so then I went and got a bank loan for $9,000 and bought all this fabric. And then I remember having a heart attack that night because <laughs> I'd spent $9,000 and I was never <laughs> sure how I was going to pay it back. <laughs> Were you scared
2: to do that? I was
0: so scared. I was so scared. Yeah. I, I, I remember not sleeping. Actually, not sleeping over um, work stress has, is a constant thing, but it your problems just get bigger as your business gets bigger. So back then that was a, that was a big deal.
2: Did you ever think about finding the cash from elsewhere or was a bank loan, was that like, why did you make that decision at that time?
0: I think that's the only uh, loan I ever did get and I paid it back quite quickly. I think it was just a personal loan. I think it was just the option that was available the easiest at the time.
1: And what were you discovering at the markets in ter- from a from a consumer perspective? Like obviously you're there, you're able to talk to them, you're able to find out like what were some of the deep customer insights at that time that you were discovering?
0: I think obviously what they're responding to as far as color and print and fabrication, and also style and and you know we would have people come and give us give me ideas. like I'd have someone come up and say, can you make a robe out of that fabric? And, and then we would do it and, and, and bring it back the next the next weekend. So I think, you know, it's, it's a, it was a long time ago, so I, I can't remember the exact <laughs> insight. I just remember people responding to it really, really well and it's selling out. You'd, you'd virtually just go home with bits and bobs at the end of it. Um, it just it just had a really good response and it told me that what I was doing was we were on the right track.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, did it give you that confidence? That like,
0: okay. Yeah, Definitely. Definitely, I, you know, I think you've got to have market acceptance with any idea, and and taking it out there and showing anybody and having them respond to it is um is the first the first thing we always do with any new design.
1: Mm. Was there ever a point at, in those early days that you were like, oh, maybe sleepwear isn't the right thing? No, I think at the
0: time, sleepwear, there was you know really sexy slips and then flannelette pajamas. And I knew that there was a market there for something else. And I also, it was really a business decision because I knew that I wanted some longevity in it. I didn't want to be one of those brands that was in and then out. So I knew that I'd have some longevity in sleepwear.
2: Everyone needs to sleep. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) One thing that we all do is definitely sleep. sleep. Yeah. 100%. So
2: can you take us back to that moment where you've just. Um, borrowed 9K. Mm. You've got these orders. I'm imagining you sitting in the house (laughs) with all the fabric and all of the designs. Like how did you hustle to fulfill that order? And then what did that do in terms of changing your business, but also your mindset in terms of where you were going?
0: I think that the entire way along the journey, I've sort of been a little bit reactive and not proactive. So I would get, I get orders and then I, and then I make them and persistence is is so important so i think just continuing to keep stepping forward so when i had all that fabric and I, you know the next step was just to get it made and then it was to get it ironed and then it was to get it delivered and then it would have just been what next like you know who else who else needs some of this and i think we went as i said we went to a trade fair um, and then started the online store and that was way back we had an online store way back in 2003 when we started wow. so Um, And back in that early days, I I remember getting an email. I woke up in the morning and I had an email from Marshall Fields, which was a huge department store in the states. It must have been my butterfly that was flying across my website that captured them
2: (laughs) all the way over to the US. (laughs) All the way
0: it flew, and um, they uh, emailed me and asked if they could wholesale like you sell the product. Mm. And it was a huge like David and Goliath moment. They were owned by Target Corporation. Then I don't think they're around anymore, but um, they, you know, they used a way um, of sending purchase orders. It was it's EDI. It's what they use now to send purchase orders. But I had no idea what it was, and we didn't have barcodes on any of our product. And you know, it was it was one of those moments where every step of the way was learning something new about um, about mass production, even even though it was a test order, and it really helped us set up for a much larger scale by by going through that process.
1: Yeah. What were some of the mistakes that you made in that process? Because I imagine walking into that when you don't know what you're trying to negotiate, um, it can be a challenge, right? It can be a challenge not knowing what the terms are um, and and what the deliverables need to be from both ends. What are some of the mistakes that you made that were able to um, help you negotiate better terms the next time around?
0: Yeah, I think definitely taking that order on was probably a mistake only because we weren't set up for it, and so it was. It, it cost an enormous amount of money to find a, a distributor in the states to accept it, and to set up all of the EDI and the barcodes and and everything, the hangers that we needed. Everything was so expensive. Instead of it being a decision for us to go into the states, which is what happened eventually, it was it was them coming to us and us scrambling to make it happen. So I think the biggest mistake was just not knowing the cost and being. Um, being dazzled by the name and yeah. and and the country, and you know, big lights, kind of kind of thing, and not actually, you know, thinking it through and realizing that it's going to cost a lot of money to set up.
1: Do you think, though, that maybe accepting that first opportunity to um, sell your products over in the US may have opened some of the some doors to these opportunities, or do or not?
0: I think it definitely opened um, a lot of opportunities. So I did a trade fair over in the States, um, which is where I ended up meeting my business partner in, you know, my f- business partner now, Nikki. So there was definitely a whole lot of opportunities open from having that. Um, Saying yes to that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's There's no regrets. It's it would have just been a, a mistake to, you know, you wouldn't do it now if, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. if I look back.
2: I think though sometimes like yeah. in the early stages of the business there's always going to be opportunities mm. that come up that retrospectively you wouldn't say yes to, but it's almost like you have to say yes and have those failures or, or learnings and then that helps you move forward.
1: And other great things can come out of, out of that. You obviously met your business partner, Nikki, right? Exactly. And like you could never have predicted that, but saying yes, there is sometimes a silver lining we need to remember. Yeah.
2: So we want to talk a little bit about product development and how you've kind of built out your your merchandise offer, I guess, over the years. Um, you offer lots of different things now, silk, cotton, you know, all sorts of different categories. What did you start with? Did you start with kind of one suite of products and really nailed that before you built out? What was your kind of approach?
0: Yeah, we definitely started. I definitely started with woven printed pyjamas. That's what I, I specialised in print and they lent themselves to beautiful cottons. So it was cotton pyjamas with our prints on it and that, that's what we started with and that's what, you know, was all we were doing in the beginning. And then Nikki's actually been instrumental in bringing a, a totally different aspect of design as well. So I do specialise in print and, and woven, like, you know, cotton pyjamas and we, we have a huge focus on natural fabrics and Nikki is brilliant at elevated basics and loungewear, and so now the collection has you know a beautiful woven pieces spliced back with knits and um, in modals and organic cottons, and it just creates the whole experience. And there's something for everybody, you know. There's something for every girl. If you if you prefer, if you're a knit girl or a woven girl, or if you're a print girl or a solid girl. We've got we've got it covered now, so it's definitely evolved from being just printed woven pajamas to being, you know, something for everyone at the moment. You know, it's it's it's
1: really evolved a lot. Let's talk about Nikki coming on board, and um, we can talk about it from a product development um, perspective. Did you was that something that you realised like oh I need help in being able to expand the categories, the range, the product offer, and that's why you wanted to bring someone into the business.
0: Yeah, Nikki and I had worked together previously. So we had worked together doing private label design and development for other brands. And so I knew she was an expert at what she did. And when she came on board, Papinel was was grown enough that it it needed, I knew that it needed what she could offer. Mm. So um, and so, you know, luckily enough, her and her husband, actually John, he, he's got a, a real business mind and comes from a big business background. So you know, does a lot of work steering the ship and Nikki and I are very creative and do all the product. So it, they came on right at the growth time that we that Nell needed it.
1: It's interesting that you both have um, a creative uh, approach, right? You're both the creative drivers of the business. Do you ever find tension? Was it difficult bringing on someone else that is also creative and and obviously has a different style?
0: I think, Two minds is always better than one and while we don't always agree, we respect each other's opinions and I think that's really important. There's 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 a lot of times where we don't agree, but I respect her opinion enough and vice versa that I know it's because we both care so much and between the two of us, we'll come out with the best outcome.
1: And it's obviously been a really fruitful relationship, which I think is a great blueprint for a lot of founders, especially creatives who may start out on their own that you can bring someone else on board that's also creative and work really well together.
0: Yeah, I think it's a quite a, you know, a, a dangerous position to be in to not realise that there's other amazing people out there that might even be better than you. <laughs> I think it's important to always have people that are better or smarter than you around you rather than feel threatened by that.
2: And so what was the process like of Nikki coming on board and then helping to really drive building out these other categories in the business? How did that work? So
0: Nikki was able just to see the holes, you know, I still do what I do best. It wasn't like she was, she was you know, wasn't coming in and saying, oh, I don't like that or I don't like that. It was more we could develop this and we can develop that and we can do better with this. And so she was just actually filling in the gaps. And And in actual fact, you know, I would come up with a a print every month and this is the way it still works. I come up with a couple of prints. She'll, she might give colour direction and then she'll splice it with all the beautiful knits and loungewear and then on a rack it's a whole story and it looks beautiful.
1: And then how does that translate, that, that story that you've just spoken about, how does that translate across um, your different channels? Because obviously now you've got the online retail, you've got, um, you know, bricks and mortar, you've got wholesale, wherever in the US. How do you retain kind of control over that story and how does it play out across the different channels?
0: Yeah, so each month we'll create a full collection and that's what we show to department stores and that's what we show to everyone and that's what gets delivered all at once. So it's it's a formula and it's, it's not rocket science, but we're both very good at it and now we're doing it all the time and, you know, we've got a lot of energy and so it, it, it works. And then we've got line card items that are in stock all the time. So they're the items that we don't ever want to be out of stock of and they sell really well. It might be like black silk pyjamas or, you know, our, our modal loungewear and so they just stay in stock all the time and then everything else is, is, is designed to come in and go out each
2: month. So you have a core collection and then you design a new collection every month and you pitch that to your retail partners and then do they sort of decide whether they'll take that collection on or is it sort of like everything you design goes goes out to every single channel?
0: Well, we've got, our retail partners are just a few key partners is the right word and they will buy every month. We've never done anything that they've said, oh, don't like it. They might not buy everything. Mm. They definitely pick their favourites mm-hmm. and they also pick what works for them. You know, different yeah. price points work for different um, department stores and different customers, so they'll pick their favourites. Uh, and But the same thing happens whether it's Nordstrom or Bloomingdale's or or David Jones here, and then online it, it flows through the same way. It all just appears each month there's a whole new
2: collection. Is it stressful being on that sort of treadmill of like having to always produce new I don't. Concepts? Think, yeah, that part's not stressful. You've got to love it though. Yeah. And, and that's
0: where I get my energy and that's what excites me every day. And seeing product come in yeah. still excites me to this day. Like when a sample comes in, it looks amazing. It's so exciting. So I think you've, yeah. you
2: definitely just have to love what you do. What well, part about it is stressful?
0: I find the financial side stressful. I don't know any small business owner that wouldn't yeah. have that answer. And I find. Um, it's stressful when people, if, if anyone is to leave, because I fall in love with humans in the people in the office. I hate it when, they, you know, if it, like staff, staff. we've got the most awesome team of people in Australia and in New Zealand. And so I find it stressful trying to find new people because yeah. it's, it's like having a new family member.
1: You're absolutely right. We were actually just saying the exact same thing. It's like we want to work with people that are a work family. They're a family, right? Yeah. They have, totally. Yeah. What have you learned in the hiring and firing process? Like what are some of the lessons? Oh gosh. I definitely
0: hire people because I like them, not because they're good at stuff. <laughs> and has that paid well <laughs> for you in the business? No, yeah, it really has. Oh, good. Oh, it actually right. really has. Um, I think so many of our girls started out on the office on the shop floor. Uh, in fact, it wasn't until about a year ago that we actually hired someone in st- the first the first person. Susanna, our amazing marketing manager, she was the first person that we got that hadn't started in the, on the shop floor. So we hadn't hustled their way through because that's what I'd done. I mean, yeah. I was, everything was self-taught. Wow. And so um, everyone in our office, you know, a large majority of them have come, love the business, have a lot of energy, great people and, and work their way
2: up. I love that. And I guess they come from the shop floor and know the customer and understand the product. And I think it help, I think that helps in any role in the business, having that kind of fundamental understanding of the customer and the product. We want to talk about cash money because you did say that the financial side can be stressful and I think it's something that comes up all the time, no matter who we're talking to, whether it's, you know, established founders like yourself or early stage founders, it's like the managing of cash flow and... Or even someone trying to raise. Or even someone trying to raise can be really, really stressful. Yeah. Especially when you running a product-based based business where you have to pay supplies, invest in stock, there are delays in payments, all of that sort of stuff. What have you learned? What's been hard and what have you learned about managing cash flow as a product-based business?
0: I think I've gotten much better at it. So in in the early stages, I would sort of spend everything and then and then earn it back. Now I make sure that you know everything is is much more calculated now. So there's a lot less risk involved because you know how much you can sell, you know how much you have to buy. There there are obviously uncertain times like what we've just all been through with COVID, where the rug gets pulled from under you. And you know, in our situation, that was fortuitous because everyone started to wear sleepwear, and you you know, it really helped us. But I'm sure that there were a lot of businesses out that didn't have the same outcome. But I think. I think now it's it it's as I said. There's just a lot less risk involved because so much of it is known, mm-hmm. and so much of it is thought through. So if there's any retail store we're going to open, we know we virtually know exactly what what it's going to take, what the rent is, what you know, what our risk is. So mm-hmm. it's um it's just the knowledge that you've gained along the way
1: helps you in the future, and it's using that knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. You've obviously got such deep insights into every you know domain of the business which is quite incredible um, and we do suggest especially as an early stage founder that you know you go and do it all and know it inside out before you hand it over which i think you know is obviously what you believe too let's dive into like let's let's pick marketing because I'm interested like what have you learned it sounds like you held on to that you just mentioned it before and you know you said maybe you would get someone in to help you but you've obviously learned quite a bit in that space I'd love to know what you've learned from a you know, customer perspective, product perspective, what's worked?
0: Yeah, I think you'd have to know or you, you organically get a tone of voice. You get, you know, your, your how your images look and how your girl looks. And um, I think those things I know without sometimes even being, at, being able to, to put, put down on paper, I'll get an image and I'll just know it doesn't work but I can't tell you why. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is is sort of ingrained in um, in in just knowing our customers so well. There are so many aspects of marketing though that that are beyond me, especially digital marketing. <laughs> it's a whole whole different kettle of fish. So I, I think visually, so packaging and old fashioned, you know, old school marketing is is something that naturally I have an eye for. All of the new style of marketing, I think is you have that we've got such talented amazing people that that know exactly what they're doing in that field and I love learning about it I love going into analytics and finding out what people are responding to and why and then listening to podcasts or watching you know videos on what other people are doing and and just always learning I think it's so important to always keep moving forward and always learn.
2: Is there anything you've done in the marketing space that just hasn't worked?
0: We, we you know we try and be really responsive And real. So if there is an an event, like I remember years ago that there was a big Sydney storm, and we were like, we've got to, you know, do something for this storm, and right now, right today, and we would do it. Or, you know, during COVID, doing something for nurses and just, just being really real and in real time. And that kind of has worked really well for us. It's when you plan really far in advance and have all these, um, you know moments plotted out and they might be in this in the US and in Australia so the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere but they just don't translate because you know it's super hot over there and it's you know it, you know they're in a different moment especially with what's going on now their energy is very different
1: We were having coffee this morning with a couple of friends and they're about to launch a direct-to-consumer fashion label and um, one of the hot topics we were talking about was uh, electronic direct marketing, you know, email marketing. I know that you guys kind of invest a fair bit in that. I think that's one of your, you know, major marketing channels. Can you tell us more about what you've learned in that space in particular and how important is it for the brand?
0: Yeah, look, our mailing list, so the people that are on it, a gold for us. So I think it's about it's, it's about getting authentic, real people on your mailing list, and then once you've got them, you've got to protect that with your life, and not send unnecessary messages, or um, you know, I, I, it, you can be really direct. And each of our it, we send now three EDMs a week, mm-hmm. and we try and you know change the tone of each one. And the subject line is so important. That's one thing that, uh, that we've learnt a lot. So you've got to tell the per- not waste anyone's time, tell them exactly what's in there and, and keep it short and sweet. And um, if it's an offer, announce it. If it's not, if it's new, a new season, you announce it. So I think it's all about the subject line and also having that really valuable database and acquiring new people for that database.
2: How have you done that? How have you built the list over so, time?
0: Yeah, I think in store is key. So, mm. so engaging with customers while they're in the store and asking them, and that's the other thing is is not being deceitful and saying, "Can we grab your email for a receipt?" It's it's actually it's actually saying, you know, you'll sign up for this and you'll get this. And the number one increase in our database
1: would be through our online store. We were talking earlier about product development, and you mentioned um, when we were talking about kind of producing. 12 ranges a year, one a month, that that's the way the industry is. Do you feel like sometimes that you are at the beck and call of the industry? Yeah, I I think
0: we, to to be honest, we probably wouldn't do 12 a year if it wasn't, if there wasn't an audience for it or a customer for it. So, but it's a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have that customers want to see new product and that that product is selling.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. We were talking with um, Dale from Bondo Born at Fashion Week and she was having this exact conversation she ranges in um, retailers here and overseas um, who have an expectation around a certain number of collections that needed to be dropped a year and she said there was a bit of tension for her in terms of that demand and also building a sustainable brand, which you are. Do you feel that tension as well?
0: I, I tend to focus on making sure the product that we do make, we're making the right decisions around. Because in all honesty, if we weren't doing 12 ranges a year, we'd be doing six but with double the units. Mm-hmm. So just because we design more, it doesn't mean that it's worse for the environment. That's a good point. Great point.
2: Yeah, yeah. Can you talk to us about, I guess, how sustainability plays into your product development process and actually your broader business?
0: Yeah, I think we've always gone by the motto that we're not perfect, but we really care, and yeah. we're on the journey and we're learning on that on that journey, like everybody else is. So if somebody comes to us with a better way or a better Solution for something where all (laughs) is super keen on anything that we can do to make you know our business better and make us feel proud, and we don't want to shout it from the rooftops. It's not something you know we go into, so but we but we try and make the right decisions. So you know whether it's the buttons that are Caruso nut and not plastic, or Mm. using organic cotton instead of normal cotton, or moving from polyester to recycled polyester, if there's an an alternative out there and it's available to us, we want to make sure we're considering that. Yeah. And I think the biggest one at the moment is plastic. So we've you obviously moved to compostable plastic. But before we did that, we removed all the plastic from our garments. And I don't know anyone else who does this, and I, it's probably a bit crazy, but we just get one polybag per carton, not one polybag per Item. item. And that came from seeing girls in stores get their weekly deliveries yeah. and just have piles and piles of plastic to get their stock um, out on the floor.
1: And has that been detrimental to your product?
0: It's not been detrimental to a product, but the staff, you know, there's some, there's some instances where a robe tie might fall out and go missing. You know, we don't package anything in plastic anyway. So the garment, when it's an online order, goes from the carton into a paper bag that g- then goes into a compostable satchel. So there's the, the difference is literally taking away a step of opening that plastic before you slide it into a bag. But so it does create, it has created a few headaches. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes people might dig into the the, the box and, and unfold things. <laughs> it does create a little bit of of extra legwork, but nothing that's been a showstopper. Not there's never been a moment where an issue has made us think, no, we've got to go back to plastic wrapping everything. Even when the opportunity came up to, to to wrap everything in compostable bags, it's still waste. Like it's still something that's been manufactured that's going to get thrown away. So if we can avoid
1: doing that, we will. And what's the process like in terms of finding a supplier? Is that an entirely new supplier? Are the existing ones able to work with you and provide you with these new materials? How have you gone about it?
0: Yeah. So our existing suppliers all have access
1: to organic cotton. So it's been quite straightforward. (laughs) So why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you go with some of these more organic materials? I think it's a cost situation. How much more expensive are we talking?
0: It depends on the fabric and it depends on whether you want it certified. So if you want certified organic, it means that every single step along the manufacturing process has to be certified and they have to get certified by a third party who is costly for that fact- factory. So you're actually asking the factory to go to the expense of making them certified, and and it is a, a third-party company that's often, um, you know, makes money from certifying people. So, you know, it, it makes the end product more expensive. If it's certified, it can be, you know, 30% more expensive.
2: What would you say to sort of early-stage founders who are looking to start maybe a fashion label or really any kind of brand and who are wanting to kind of um, start a sustainable business, I guess, what advice would you give? Because I think the feedback that we get a lot from our community is like, oh, my God, it's so overwhelming. Like, I definitely want to embed sustainability into my ethos and my product specifically. But like, holy crap, I don't know where to start.
0: Yeah, I just think don't make any claims. Like, I am yeah. i always just say, if you care, you'll make those decisions anyway and you have to be on the journey. Like it's just the way forward. Everybody has to be on the journey. We, we all have to be making conscious decisions. And as long as, you know, you, you're, you're doing that and you're trying and you're learning and you're on that train, then I don't, I, you, you know, when you don't come out and say we're a carbon neutral brand if you're not and you, you can't prove it, I think it's just really important to be honest and say, look, there, there's still areas I know that we can be doing better and we're working towards it.
1: I guess as a response to your sustainable um, and ethical practices, have you seen that your customers are responding well to that and changing their buyer behavior?
0: I think Australia's really good. There's there's a long way to go in, in other areas, but Australia's really good. They, you know, they like they don't mind paying a little bit extra for organic cotton. You know, when we first released our basics collections in organic, it could have had a little bit of a kickback because the the retail price might have been a, a few dollars more, but people responded to it even even more. So I think the Australian consumer's educated and and they love being a part of of smart
2: decisions. You know, what about the US? What about what are you seeing in terms of the US customer?
0: I think the US is starting. They're starting to ask there too. The, it's consumer led, right? So often when big you know big department stores they will do what their customers want. And the more people that start asking for organic or sustainable elements, we just got asked by Nordstrom for the first time um, some sustainability questions about our product. Yeah, Whereas David Jones has been doing that for years. Really? Yeah.
2: I mean, that's a good sign.
0: Yeah, it's a great sign.
2: Tell us a little bit about your plans for America because I think a lot of people look to the US after they kind of like cement themselves here in Australia. Yeah.
0: Well, as I touched on earlier, we knew that Nordstrom was our was our customer, and so we went in there, and they did a test order with twenty five doors, and then the second order went to seventy five doors, and then it went to all doors, and then we went to Middle America, which is a different customer Ooh. altogether. Ooh, I can imagine it's, entirely. <laughs> yeah, and it's um, and we weren't sure whether she would respond the same way, and so we you know, we showed our collection to an amazing department store that's called Dillard's and they've got, you know, 300 stores right down that middle band and they sort of purchased similar things to what Nordstrom did and it did really well and they did the same thing. They rolled it out to more stores. So we knew we had market acceptance and then, you know, we we went into Bloomingdale's as well. So we knew that we had all of these customers across America that liked our product and liked our price point and were buying and responding. So we started our US website just over a year ago now and it still ships from Australia and the customer service is still in Australian time but the checkout experience is localised. So they check out in US dollars and we have free returns and, you know, all of those things. But it is a little bit slower and we're very transparent about the fact that it is Australian brand and that it is being shipped from Australia. So I think that that is a little bit of a hurdle that we'll need to overcome And we can probably only overcome it by setting ourselves up in the States. (laughs) Yeah, because I was just going to say,
2: especially in the States, like there's this expectation around same day or next day delivery. Yeah. Definitely. How have you educated the customer in terms of, you know, not being able to deliver on that?
0: Well, FedEx are fantastic. (laughs) We can get there in two days. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so if you order today, it can arrive, you know, in some instances 24 hours later. But COVID has thrown a little bit of a spanner in the works there. But prior to COVID, it was really fast. so. uh, But it's still two to four business days uh, is is average and and people like to have same day and next day and, you know, quick returns and the returns take a while because we send them back a bit slower.
1: Yeah. I mean, have you ever explored like a distribution partner that's on the ground in the US that could just simply deliver the product from there?
0: Yeah, we're exploring all sorts of options at the moment for the States because, again, it's a hungry mouth to feed for us and The opportunity there is is amazing. We know that the customer loves it and so, uh, you know, we've got to just work towards making the experience a little bit better for our U.S. girls.
2: Have there been points in the journey where you haven't loved it and you've been like, I just don't know whether this is the right thing?
0: Uh, There's always parts of it that you don't love and I think that that's in any job though. There's always going to be a part of it that you don't love you know, it's quite hard when you travel and then you've got to um, have that energy and you're jet lagged and you've got to show a collection and, and you've just landed and you've got to steam it all in your hotel room and, you know, have it all ready to go the next day. It all sounds amazing, but it's it's quite challenging. But then when it's done, it's an enormously satisfying moment. You know, it's, it's it, yeah, there's certainly parts of it that haven't been as great as others you know, delays in, in shipping and, you know, telling customers something's late, all those things are, are, are horrible and, and never fun but they're reality and, and everyone has to do things they don't love. I think that's actually if, you know, anyone going into any job that thinks that it's going to all be amazing is maybe a little delusion.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it is, yeah. Have you, have you had to sacrifice anything major in your life over the last 18 years? I call Papinel
0: my second child. I had my son when um, there weren't many employees and I was able to jump off the train for a few months and be a mum. By the time he was, you know, two or three, I, I definitely, you know, it was a decision we made and there's absolutely no regrets. But I think it would have been a different journey if I didn't have Papinel and, you know, it, it wasn't, it is my second child. So I think, um, Probably a, probably a little bit of, of my social life has, has, also, um, has also been sacrificed, but not really. I, I think that I have a really good balance. I, You know, if we travel, I make sure we go travel as a family and do things that we enjoy. I'm not one of those people that can really sit on a lilo for 10 days in Fiji anyway. I just can't do it. So I take my laptop on the lilo and I'll be there. <laughs> just don't fabulous in the water. <laughs>
2: laptop on the lilo. I
1: love that.
2: I love that. Were there any of times back in the early days when you're in a sticky situation and you maybe you made a mistake around investing too much in product or um, where you were kind of at crunch, like crunch time in terms of cash flow? Like I think the first 12
0: years. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh my God, that makes me feel so much better.
0: <laughs> the first 12 years yeah. were all
1: crunch time. Yes. <laughs> It was like living on the edge. Oh, oh my, my God. God. How we, how do we not all look like twice as old as we, we are? are. I, I know. That's what I want to know. I remember reading. Do. <laughs> I remember reading somewhere that it should take eight years and I was like
0: at year 12 going, come on, I've got to get off the edge.
1: What's been one of the most memorable, heart-stopping, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening to me moment on your journey so far? Always, I think it's
0: just... There's been a few. One of the big like mic drop moments was when Forbes wrote about us and said that we were one of the 32 female-led businesses to watch out for. Yes, I've seen that one. That was amazing. <laughs> uh, such a reputable magazine. It was just out of the blue, and it was so exciting. I think getting into David Jones back in the day was big. Peter Alexander had just gone to Myer, I think, and they were looking for a replacement. And the idea back then that we would fill those big shoes was so exciting. And then. Obviously, getting into Nordstrom was a huge thing. I, Nikki and I literally went over there with our suitcases, hired, uh, bought on Amazon racks and hangers and steamers, did it all in the room, and, and then it was, like, snowing and we had to wheel our rack to, to their offices. Yeah, to oh their offices. And, um, and then we had this amazing meeting with them, and it was so collaborative, and they were, you know, pulling things and and we worked together, and then they bought on the spot for six months. So that was, like, that night we were just like, what? <laughs> It was, it was awesome. So, so that, that, those would be the most memorable.
2: What about one piece of business advice that you can leave our listeners with? Like one gold nugget of advice. Yeah.
0: Look, I think, as I said before, it's, you've got to love what you do and have persistence. So it would be set a goal and have a burning desire to get there. That's what I think you need because if you love what you do, you're going to be good at it, chances are. And persistence helps you get through the ups and the downs. And if you don't have persistence, it's so easy to jump off that train when there's a down. So you've got to just keep going. We always refer to to Papinel or I refer to myself and Papinel as a mountain
1: goat. We just keep
0: climbing. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, my God.
1: Okay, so I'm obsessed with goats and that <laughs> is so... True and so perfect. Yeah. The ones that like stand and also the ones that can stand. Yeah, they the stand edge. like this, right? They stand. It's like, how are you standing <laughs> Still, on like a cliff yeah. face? Like, yeah. But they just, they're resilient. Yeah. They just figure it out and they just keep yeah. walking around. Oh my it's God. It's also my star sign. So it's oh, it? I love yeah. it. Yeah. Be a mountain goat. Keep on climbing. <laughs> they, oh, and they, oh my they God. might slip back a little bit, nothing. But they do. Nothing they major. never fall. No. Nah, they never fall, but just they may go going. down. Yes. Oh.
2: I love and that. I'll make
1: a quote out of that one. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, we'd love to give you the opportunity to give a shout out to someone, a lady brain, maybe it's someone in your team, someone that's mentored you in the past, that's helped you along your journey. Oh, gosh. Carla Zampati uh,
0: uh, yeah. She took time out of her busy, amazing, successful career to really Help and guide me in the early days. I met her at an event when I just started Pappy Nell, and she gave me her mobile number and said, "Make sure you let me know." And I did. I used to call her and go to her house. And and when we got into David Jones, I showed her the contract and she read through it. And she's just like such an angel, and um and always, always had all the time. Like she would, you know, give quotes to press if I needed them and. Um, you know, just just any anything I needed in those early days, she was she was there. So, um I'll be forever grateful for that. Mm.
2: What did she teach you?
0: I remember one thing she said to me. She said to me, "When you design, design something that you would have worn 10 years ago and that you will wear in 10 years time and then it's a winner." And I thought it's so brilliant because especially in what we do, which is sleepwear. it, It doesn't, and it's what she does as well, and she did so well, is design timeless pieces that last. So that always sticks with me.
1: I've got goose pimples. It's been so nice hearing the stories of Carla Zampatti and um, the lessons that she's shared with so many I was so surprised. How
0: I thought I was yeah. special,
1: but I'm not. She was yeah. an incredible woman. Mm. Um, and, yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. It's been amazing. Thanks for it's having been me. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Okay, there was a lot of stuff that we took out of this conversation with Renee. Firstly, don't be afraid to bring people on board for help. Even if they have a similar skill set to you. It was really interesting. Renee brought Nikki on, another creative, after 15 years in business, and it's only helped her take the brand to the next level. Secondly, big opportunities, big brands, big dollars might come your way, but don't get distracted by the sexy opportunity. Do your due diligence and know exactly what you're walking into. Renee said yes to a very big order from a department store in the US and she actually wasn't set up to deliver on it. So make sure in those instances, find the right people who can help you make the best decision for your business. And lastly, if you believe you've got a good product or service and if you believe in yourself, don't give up. It took Renee 12 years to get to the point where she was making good money. If you're in a downswing right now, please take this as a sign to just keep on going. Your payoff is right around the corner, we promise. If you are feeling alone and need a little bit of support, come into our Facebook group. You can search The Lady Brains Clubhouse and you'll find us. Lady Brains
1: is produced by Beth Gibson. Audio production by Nicholas Sitch.
2: Listener.